You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together as a sign of reverence, which comes from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can gather now together as your people, chosen known, called out by name. We are your sheep, and we need to be fed. So Jesus, the true shepherd, the chief shepherd, would you feed us, strengthen us. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. Search our hearts, examine us. Um, May our lives be surrendered over to you more and more. Strengthen our faith, strengthen this church. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of months ago, one of my Asian pastor friends posted a video on you, uh, posted a video on Facebook that showed an African American man running down a sidewalk and needlessly and sort of randomly knocking over an elderly Asian woman and just beating on her. Um, almost for a solid minute, he was hitting her, sort of stomping on her. And what was troubling was that there were people that were watching what was going on. They did nothing about it. And maybe some of you have seen that video. There's been an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans since COVID started, and it's a real concern. It's a real concern for me, obviously, because I'm Asian American. I have elderly parents who are Asian. I, not no surprise. Um, I have a wife and a daughter who are Asian, and I mention that because a lot of these hate crimes have been targeting the elderly and young females. In addition to posting the video, my friend wrote something like, this needs to stop. Asian Americans need to rally together and let our voices be heard. My instinctive reaction was, yes, of course, this is bad. Let's rally together. This this has got to stop. But then I had this dilemma. Do I like his post? Do I comment on it? Do I share it with others? Um, 
what, what are, a lot of thoughts were racing through my mind. What are the pros and cons? What are the risks and benefits of sharing something like that publicly? Now, on the one hand, if I don't say anything, my fellow Asian Americans might accuse me of being a coward or reinforcing this sort of model minority stereotype where I don't ruffle any feathers and I just passively go along and just hope that this just goes away. Or if I do comment, if I like it, share it on my Facebook page, what would my non-Asian friends think? What would you hear as New Life members think? There goes our executive pastor. He seemed like a decent guy, but he's kind of getting caught up on all these social issues, right? You know, Asian lives, black lives, what's next? Critical, you know, critical race theory? You know, some others might think, finally, our pastor's taking a stand. You know, this was an easy one. He's been so quiet lately. Maybe he'll start to comment on the vaccines or Trump or Biden. Now, sitting there in front of my laptop, what I needed in that moment was wisdom. Because depending on what I did or didn't do, I could potentially be offending and getting into a dispute with somebody online. Whether you have 50 friends and followers or 500 friends and followers on Facebook or Instagram, whether you're 15 years old or 65 years old, you probably know what I'm talking about. You've been there. Because this is the world we live in. For the past 14 months, I think the church has lived through an unprecedented reality, and I don't say that lightly. Of course, this is not the first time that the church has dealt with a pandemic and we've had to be quarantined or through a time of deep political divide or a time of, of social unrest because of race issues. We've lived through these times before. But what is unprecedented is that not only do we have all of these factors converging simultaneously all at once, we have the internet. Now, positively speaking, we have a place virtually where we can go to school, we, go to ch- we, we work, we've been going to church online, and of course the internet is not optimal, but in a time of quarantine and lockdowns, it's been very helpful. But negatively speaking, we have this virtual space where anybody can make their, their opinions known and broadcast it out to the entire world with a click of a button within minutes. That's insanely powerful, and it's dangerous. There's tremendous potential for misunderstanding and hurt and conflict. Of course, the internet isn't, due, isn't new. I think it's been around for over 25 years. But over the past 14 months, the whole world, almost overnight, has been forced to work and live and socialize primarily and for some exclusively in the virtual world. And that's what's unprecedented. We live in a time where we now have two realities that we're having to navigate. We have the physical world and we have the virtual world. And it takes exceptional wisdom to know how to live in both realities in a way that loves God and serves others. Because here's what's been happening. Important matters that we need to be thinking through and discussing carefully with a lot of thought over an extended period of time, topics that deal with our beliefs and our values and how we should live, things that should be dealt with in a face-to-face friendship, in an environment of grace and trust, we find ourselves instead relegated to a five-minute video on YouTube or a three-minute read on Facebook or an email that somebody forwarded to you. And just like me when I was sitting there in front of my laptop with my friend's post on Asian crime, on Asian hate crimes, you're you're in a situation where you need to 
you feel like you need to take sides, you need to take a stand, and you need to decide what your loyalties are. And whether you personally post, like, comment, or just troll, troll others that do, the virtual stage has been set for frustration, distrust, and conflict because everything has been oversimplified, polarized, and unnuanced. And we need wisdom to know how to live in both realities because our personal spiritual health, the health of the church, and our witness to the world is on the line and online. And that's why we're looking at the book of James this morning. Of all the New Testament books, the book of James is the book that most closely resembles a wisdom book from the Old Testament, like Proverbs, because it contains so many direct commands and warnings. If you were to read, for example, one of Paul's letters, like Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, and, and then read the book of James, you see this contrast immediately. In, in, with Paul, you have a lot of systematic theology. You have justification, predestination, incarnation. And then you read James, and he says, stop talking so much and listen more. You know, stop gossiping, stop slandering, stop showing favoritism. James' emphasis is on how we are to live as believers wisely in this world. A little, bit, a little bit of background on the book of James might be helpful. James is writing this letter to Jewish Christians. These are people who grew up in Judaism. They've converted over to Christianity. Christianity is a new religion. There aren't that many believers around. And they're being persecuted for their newfound faith in Jesus. And as a result of the persecution, they're being pushed out of Jerusalem, pushed out of Israel. And in addition to, and, and what was difficult there is as you're being pushed out of Israel as a Jew, you're being disenfranchised because the center of life happened in Israel. Not only that, these dispersed Jewish Christians are dealing with poverty. They don't have sufficient means to provide for themselves and their families. So you have this newfound faith. And remember, they didn't have the benefit of all of the, the, the scriptures the way we do. They're being persecuted. They're being displaced physically. Um, socially and relationally, they're, um, they feel isolated. They're marginalized or disenfranchised. And financially, they're going through poverty. That's a very, very bad combination of factors to be happening all at the same time. And as a result of all of these external factors that are converging, instead of drawing closer to each other and closer to the Lord, the exact opposite is happening. They're turning on each other, and they're turning away from the Lord. The tone of this passage is solemn. James is calling out sin and dysfunctionality in the church. He rebukes them. He calls them names. He calls them double-minded. He calls them adulterers. He calls them sinners. But he does that because he cares so much about the unity of the church and the purity of the church and the witness of the church. In fact, most commentators, as they read through the entirety of these five chapters, there's 106 verses. What they say is the passage that we just read is sort of the, sort of the high point of, of this entire letter where James shares his uh, pastoral heart. As a half-brother of Jesus, he's, he's sharing the heart of Jesus here. And as you know, things are sl- as you know here, things are starting to return back to normal. We're here meeting in the sanctuary. Businesses and restaurants are opening up again. People are eating inside, masks off. School is going to be back in person in the fall. 
But I think before we just jump right back into the way things were, it would be important and healthy for all of us to just reflect on the past year and allow this passage from James to examine our hearts individually and corporately and consider what it is that we need to be wrestling with and how do we come out of this as uh, more devoted and faithful followers of Jesus. I mentioned that this book is like a wisdom book, so there's a lot of commands, there's a lot of things that James puts in here, so it's going, to be ent- it's going to be impossible for me to do justice to this entire passage. So I just want to focus on three things and three points. The first, um, I want to focus on two primary concerns that James addresses and one pastoral exhortation. And it's straight out of the passage. The first concern is, is fighting within the church. And the second concern is friendship with the world. And the third is this pastoral exhortation where James tells us to submit ourselves to God. First concern is fighting within the church. Second concern is friendship with the world. Third pastoral exhortation is to submit yourselves to God. Again, the first concern that James addresses is fighting within the church. And he tells us that the reason that the believers are fighting and arguing and even killing each other is because they can't get what they want. He says, you desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, you read this, and if you actually read this carefully, and you're reading this, and he says, I get fighting and arguing, but killing? Like, what in the world is he talking about? What was going on in this church? Now, most likely, what James is referring to is you have these external factors that are so difficult and they're, they're frustrated, they're isolated, they're struggling with poverty, and, and yet they look around, there are other believers in the church maybe that may be doing a little bit better than they are, maybe they're dismissive of their, of their personal situation, and as a result, there's this envy and, and jealousy and this hatred. And, and it's maybe most likely in the spirit of Jesus where Jesus talks about when you have hatred in your heart, you've essentially murdered the person. And that's probably what, what James is addressing. But at the same time, theologians will tell you it's actually not that easy. And here's why. Theologians believe that James may have actually been talking about real killing, real murder. And the reason for that is that there were converts within this new group of believers that were former Jewish zealots. Jewish zealots were an aggressive, passionate political party that wanted to overthrow Rome and kick Rome out of Israel. They're like this rough band. They're going to get make things right. And, and they were known for using violence and murder to achieve their ends. They were called zealots for a reason. Or we look back on them, we call them zealots. They were fanatics. Now, even though nobody here at New Life is killing each other, literally, I think there's a warning here that the more zealous or fanatical or dogmatic we become in our views, regardless of what the issue is, our tendency will be to respond aggressively and violently, whether it's verbal or emotional or just over an email. And this aggression and hatred can manifest online, in person, in a Facebook post, in a meeting among leaders, or even in a Bible study when you're discussing a very controversial topic. And James tells us that the source of the argument of the fighting and the killing is from within. He says that your passions are at war within you. 
For passion, James uses the Greek word hedone. And he says that there's a war taking place within us. Hedone, which refers to a sinful, self-indulgent, self-seeking pleasure. And there's a battle within our hearts, within our minds, between this and that. And, and it's this battle within that, that affects the battles without. And our conflict and fighting with other believers outside and around us first starts and stems from the fighting within. And the outcome of the fight within our own minds and hearts will determine how we fight and whether or not we fight at all with those that are outside. Before we fight with others, there's always an internal, personal fight that first takes place. The other day, as a test, I wanted to see how many photos and videos that I get exposed to on Facebook that, or at any given point, that pull and tug at my hedone, my sinful, self-indulgent, self-seeking pleasure. And as I scroll down my Facebook feed, within five minutes, between all of the helpful and sometimes unhelpful posts of my friends, in all the ads and promotions, I counted over 20 pictures, videos, articles, or ads that involved insanely good kinds of food and drink. That's right. It may have been you, my friend, actually. Um, friend requests from models in Russia. Ads on how to use Amazon to become a millionaire. Product to grow more hair on my head. Promotions on ridiculous vacation destinations in the Philippines. And that's just Facebook. You know, I add to that Instagram, Snapchat, Netflix, and just whatever else is out there. And the amount of, of things that we're bombarded with, the amount of external stimulus that we are bombarded with that cater to our fleshly desires and impulses. And unless we're vigilant and resolved, to have specific boundaries in place either to limit the amount of social media we consume every day or have accountability with a friend regarding what we look at, chances are we are not going to win the war of passions within our hearts. And when, you're, and when you've lost the battle of passions within your heart and then you see a church member online or in person that seems to, be, that seems to have everything that you've been programmed to want and need and to have. That's when envy and jealousy and hatred starts to creep in. And that envy and hatred can lead to conflict online or maybe even in person. Now, for some of you, the passions that you battle have less to do with the food and the flesh or vacation destinations. The war in your heart involves philosophy a worldview, politics, social issues. You take these matters seriously and just as much as someone can lust after, obsess, and demand certain kinds of physical, sensual pleasures, you can equally obsess and demand a certain kind of worldview upon others. Now, as a pastor and as someone who studied political economy as my major in college, I'm personally very interested in the conversations that are taking place today around democracy, socialism, capitalism. So what do I do? I want to find out what's going on. Turn on you, clip, and I click away. And here's what I've learned, and which I'm sure many of you have learned as well. YouTube and most social media platforms have algorithms written into them so that every time you click on something, you're going to get more of what you click. 
And, and they do that because that's the best way for them to make sure you're going to stay online, you're going to watch their ads, and they're going to make money. So if you're watching a five-minute video on the dangers of vaccines, you'll soon be inundated with more videos on the dangers of vaccines. And every time you click on that video, you're going to be sent down this narrow tunnel where the only thing you get is the dangers of vaccines, the same message from the same perspective. I'm not giving a personal take on vaccines. I'm just giving an example. And after enough clicks and, and views, and only being presented with one perspective, we can't help but become increasingly dogmatic and discipled by YouTube. And we're convinced that our view is the only right and biblical view and the most beneficial view, the most beneficial way for America to move forward. The next day, you see a Facebook post by a church member, and it doesn't align with everything you've been consuming on YouTube. Now remember, just as much as you've been going down one narrow tunnel, this person has been going down a very different narrow tunnel. And you see this post, and what happens? You felt it, I felt it. You're, you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Like, has this person lost his mind, right? You start to question like, man, I've been going to church with this person for like 10 years and I, I don't know if I even know this person anymore. And you start to wonder, what's, what's his faith like right now, man, right? What's his relationship with Jesus like? Has he just abandoned the gospel? You may think that about church members. You may think that about the pastors, and you see what happened. The war of passions was taking place in your mind. And before you realize it, you arrived at a place where you were telling yourself, I believe this is the best way, the only way. And others must think and feel equally passionate about this as me. And when or if they don't believe or feel the way that I do, because you've been convinced that these are ultimate issues, anger, hatred, Jealousy takes over your heart, and the battle that was happening within spills over, and now you're in battle with people online and with others. In the verses immediately preceding the passage that we read this morning in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, James speaks about the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. He says, starting in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You may think you have good intentions that you're trying to be faithful to Scripture in your convictions. But what James is telling us is that heavenly wisdom must inform not only our convictions, but it needs to shape our behavior. In fact, if what we're dealing with are truly ultimate issues, isn't it even more incumbent upon us that we behave and communicate in a way that, the, that would offer the best possibility of our friends and church members to hear us? Because the more important the message, the more we need to behave with heavenly wisdom. Because in trying to win the argument, you've heard this before, you lose the person, you lose the person, you lose the argument. But if you win the person over with heavenly wisdom, you have a chance of winning the argument, not that it's about winning and losing arguments. How do you know if you're behaving with heavenly wisdom? James gives us a litmus test. James 3, verse 17, we just read it. 
Are you peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere? And if you want to know how you're doing, what, you, what, you, what I would encourage you to do is ask somebody you trust but has a very different perspective. The first concern that James addresses is fighting within the church. The second concern that James deals with is friendship with the world. In verse 4, James calls these Christian brothers and sisters adulterers. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians. So these believers were familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel, his chosen people, his, his bride, adulterers when they chase after and go after other idols and gods. So they would have understood what James meant when he called them adulterers. Verse 4 also says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And the, and the difficulty for me is when I read that, when I read that verse, is that friendship seems like such a friendly word, right? And then it seems like a harmless word, whereas adulterer and enemy of God seem like such extreme words. You know, you only call someone an adulterer when a husband or wife has, um, has crossed a certain line, ultimate betrayal. And when we think of an enemy, we think about someone who is out to hurt us and destroy us like Satan. So to better help understand the force of this passage and for it to have the impact on our conscience that I think James intends, it may be helpful to have a real-time example that speaks to this, and I have one for you. Shortly after I got married, I was having a conversation with a coworker. I didn't know him very well, and he had known that I recently gotten married. So he's asking me about it. So, you know, how was your honeymoon? You know, what's marriage like? I was like, man, it was so great. You know, we went to Tahiti, and it was amazing. And, oh, my gosh, married life. Oh, it's so awesome. I love her. She loves me. We're men for each other. There is no other, and marriage is, and we've got the perfect marriage ever. Um, and if you were there listening in, to, in that conversation, you probably would have thrown up, <laughs> but you would have also picked up on the fact that there was an intense level of passion and commitment and fidelity that Irene and I had toward each other that was unmistakable. And after he asked me about me and Irene, I noticed that he had a ring on his hand, right? So I was like, oh, you know, you're married too. How long have you been married? He says, well, we've been married for three years, but our marriage is a little different. I was like, please explain. He says, well, we have an open relationship. Now, up to that point, I've never even heard of an open relationship. I was like, especially in the context of a marriage, I was like, are you talking about open bank accounts? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And, and I was asking, I was like, I, I don't know what you mean. He says, well, the way it works for us is we're married. We love each other. We're actually best friends. But we get to date other people. I was like, oh, really? Okay. And in fact, he went on to say that week, his wife was beginning, was getting to know a guy, a coworker, better. And they were friendly. And that they were actually going out that Friday night um, to see if this relationship might become romantic. Now, I wish I was joking but I'm not. And the contrast between what I just gushed about, about my marriage, my level of intense commitment and passion for Irene, in light of what he just shared, I mean, the contrast was night and day. And 
in no in no world should that ever be okay, right? And and that's not even close to okay in my mind. For me, even if I were to bring up the possibility, or if I began to pursue a friendly relationship with a female, I would be an adulterer in Irene's mind. And I would also become her enemy, someone that was out for her destruction and our destruction, and it would be totally right for Irene to feel and believe that. And I think that's also the thrust of verse 3 where James tells us that, that, <coughs> that we ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. It would be like me asking, I mean, hon, can I get a new Audi? Because I want to date this new girl, right? Can you help me get something so I can, it can drive a bigger wedge between us and I can go pursue another lover? There's a godly and healthy jealousy that should exist in a marriage, Newlyweds understand this. Your kids understand this. Couples that have been married for a long time and have weathered the ups and downs of marriage understand this. And this is what James means when he says in verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God is is jealous in his love for us. He's absolutely against an open relationship. Even a mere friendship with the world, he calls enmity. You become an enemy of his. The spirit of God that God himself has given us, indwells us, serves as a deposit of better things to come by virtue of faith in Jesus, the spirit that is a part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, eternally knit together in perfect, uninterrupted love, fellowship, and union. And now that that spirit, the spirit of the triune God dwells in you, God the Father is jealous to maintain and preserve his relationship with that spirit. What does it mean to be friendly with the world? To put it simply, it's anything that we might desire, think, speak, or do that does not have a love for God as our greatest and highest delight. It's anything that doesn't have love for God and an obedience to God as our motivation and goal. That's what it means to be friendly with the world. And this is what Jesus meant when he says in Luke 10, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, with everything that's within you, this is a wholehearted, unreserved, complete devotion to God and his purposes. This touches upon everything. This affects how we eat, what we eat, how much money we spend on, on our food. This affects our exercise, how we think about our bodies. This affects the way we think about relationships and sex. This affects the way we think about money, our time, our gifts and our resources, it's all encompassing. So the first concern that James addresses is fighting within the church. The second concern is friendship with the world. And lastly, James provides pastoral exhortation on how to deal with both. He says, submit yourselves to God. Verse 7, where James exhorts, exhorts the believers to submit yourselves to God, that phrase serves as a summary exhortation, and the verses that follow after 
are meant to explain and to sort of detail out what, what that means. And I want to briefly um, go over these, not because it's a checklist or a formula for this is what it means to perfectly submit to God. This is meant to address the forces and the factors that we need to consider. So first, James says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here, James recognizes that there is a supernatural being, the devil, Satan, that this that there's more than just an internal passion because of our sinful nature. There's an extra force, a supernatural force that hates us and is out to destroy us and to destroy our families and to destroy the church. And he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Second, he says to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, James here isn't talking about justification or salvation where we act first and God responds. What he's talking about is his sons and daughters who have already been called out, known, known by name, but are in sin. And to the extent that we turn back to Jesus, turn back in repentance and confession, he draws near to us. He receives us just as much as the father received back the prodigal son. Third, he says to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. By addressing our hands and our hearts, James is telling us that repentance and confession must involve not only our actions, but our motivations as well. There needs to be a turning away from that sin externally, whatever it might be, but internally, there needs to be a change in our affections and our loyalties, a movement of the heart away from sin and self and to the Lord. Fourth, he goes on to say, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James isn't some sort of killjoy where he doesn't want laughter and joy. In the Old Testament, laughter is often associated with the scornful laughter of a fool, a fool who takes sin casually and refuses to take sin seriously. This is an important exhortation that we all need to take seriously. Even though we may not laugh out loud and scorn our sin, but even the most committed Christian can slip into a casual attitude about sin, presuming too much on the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And fifth, James tells us to humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He concludes this section with humility, something he already did. He started with in verse six, because James knows that repentance, confession, and submission to God ultimately all begin with humility, a deep and profound awareness of our spiritual poverty and filth, a recognition of our desperate need for God's help and grace. And the longer I live the Christian life and the longer I interact with and pastor people, the more I cherish and see the, vital, the importance of humility in a believer's life. You know, marriage can be falling apart because of betrayal, miscommunication, and all sorts of hurt. But if there's humility, then submission to God, repentance, confession, and restoration is possible. Because the church is a gathering of sinners, we're bound to hurt each other, disappoint one another, and judge each other. Pastors and elders will make mistakes and fail to shepherd as wisely and as lovingly as we should. Church members will criticize, offend, and hurt one another through gossip and slander. 
And because of the number of issues that we're dealing with today, the health, the social, political, economic issues, and the fact that we've been in lockdown, we haven't been able to gather and process together, there's been a lot of hurt. There's been a lot of quarreling. and There's been a lot of conflict that has characterized churches in America, but also here at New Life. We need to be honest about that, and we need to humble ourselves before God. The data tells us that over the past year, due to COVID and quarantine and disruption to life, there has been a drastic increase in porn, porn addiction and alcohol abuse and domestic violence. Believers aren't above that. Maybe for some of you this week or during this time of COVID, you've not only befriended the world, you've fallen completely in love with it. You've gone full steam ahead and giving into your fleshly impulses and passions And you may feel helpless, like a prisoner to your addictions. We're told that God is a jealous God, an all-consuming fire, meaning he requires perfect holiness and total devotion. But verse 6 in today's passage gives us the good news, that he gives more grace. Jesus enters our reality. He humbles himself, submits to God, loves and serves perfectly. And when and where we fail, when we're divided in our loyalties and our affections, when we find ourselves envying and jealous and in conflict with others, when we fall in love with the world, Jesus gives us more grace. And the only requirement is verse 6, Humble ourselves, humble yourselves, turn desperately to Jesus, trust and believe in the life, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus again that turns adulterers into pure brides and enemies into friends. Amen. Before I pray, I'm going to ask or give just a couple minutes for all of you to Uh, to reflect on what you've heard and to pray privately. Again, as I mentioned, James lays out two concerns and one pastoral exhortation. The question for you to consider is there conflict with a church member that you're aware of that you need to address? Conflict that could have started online or in person. Be honest, search your hearts, and ask God to convict you and to give you wisdom to know how to, to handle that. Or if there's something that is causing major um, division in your heart, something that's preventing you from loving, loving Jesus unreservedly, confess that to him and ask him to, to help you. Let's just take a couple minutes to pray. God, when we are at our absolute lowest moments, when we feel like we have have taken grace for granted, when we continue to chase after our idols and our addictions, when we give in to sin time and time again, when we deal with envy and jealousy and bitterness and, and rage, God, that does not surprise you. 
you know that we are of dust and to dust we will return. And yet your grace and your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for this unthinkable truth that is truth, that there is more grace and that you pursue us and you chase after us, you forgive us. God, we know who we are. We are yours. We are your beloved. We are your bride. But we are, but we are sinful. We stumble and we fall. We turn on each other. We fall in love with the things of the world. So Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you take again a grip of our hearts and help us to be unreservedly, wholeheartedly devoted again to Jesus? Help us to consider those that we have sinned against, those that we have offended or hurt online or in person and give us the courage, give us the conviction, give us the love to pursue, to reconcile. God, cause our church as we emerge out of COVID and into a a new time, God, that we would be stronger, brighter, more faithful to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.